no, it, it basically becomes this dialogue like, hey, is this okay? That No, that's not okay. But we can't tell you what to really write. So try again. Okay, no, it's illegal for us to tell you how to frame this conversation. So we're going to basically put you in a restaurant and be like, order what you want. I want, you know, chicken chow fun. Nope, nope. No, we're, we're, I'm not telling you what kind of restaurant we're in, but it's not that kind. And so it just goes back and forth like this. I mean, is, the, is it a wonder that physician suicide rate is so high? I mean, this is crazy. Welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior serving professionals and providers with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. Everybody, welcome back to another Mastering Medicare podcast. Um, I am your co-host, Amy Schiffman, and I am here with my co-host, Alex Moseni. Hello, everybody. Hello. (laughs) And we are so excited about today's podcast. We are interviewing Steve Ackerman, who is... I'm going to call you the president, CEO, owner of Spectrum Durable Medical Equipment, and he is going to, and I probably just botched the name of the company, it's probably Spectrum Medical, I think. Anyways, and now the dog is barking, so we're doing a great intro so far, (laughs) and uh, we are going to talk today about durable medical equipment, and it is possibly one of the most complicated things that I used to try to figure out when I was a house call doctor. I mean, it is impossible to figure out how Medicare pays for, how people get, what does Medicare pay for. All of this has been a giant mystery, and I encounter it every day in my current position. And so we're so lucky to have Steve here, and he is going to open our eyes. I am going to let Steve introduce himself a little bit, since I've done such a great job, and tell us a little bit about his company, what he's been up to for the past many, many years. And we are so excited to have your expertise here today. Oh, thank you very much, Amy and Alex. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, uh, the company is Spectrum Medical. Uh, you were pretty close on that. Um, we've been in the uh, Washington, D.C. area since 1983. Um, so we've seen the highs and lows and rides of Medicare uh, change over the years. And um, the interesting thing is the environment at home has stayed the same for those 38 years. You know, you typically have families in a uh, crisis situation or in a rehabilitation situation that you're dealing with. And um, uh, assistive devices and and equipment uh, are a big part of both of those things, whether you're getting better or whether you're uh, dying in peace, um, having a hospital bed, a wheelchair, oxygen, bathroom equipment, those sorts of things make a big deal in uh, how that process goes. I think if you're, you're, uh, I don't know if you want me to just dive into <clears throat> the background of what Medicare covers and durable medical equipment, or uh, how would you like this to go, Amy? So why don't we do this? Why don't we first talk about what is durable medical equipment? Let's start off with some really good definitions. We like definitions. Okay, well, durable medical equipment has come out of actually Medicare's uh, vernacular. They they have divided equipment, um, and this is a good thing for people who are ordering equipment or getting questions asked to them. Uh, they said, well, what kind of equipment does Medicare cover? Well, the first thing is it has to be able to sustain repeated use. It, it's nothing disposable. You know, diapers, underpads are not covered by Medicare, anything you can throw away. Um, now, that I'm not going to get into wound care and, and some of the other things where they do have coverage, but uh, basically any, any equipment has to be durable. It, ha- it can't be used in the absence of illness or injury, so you can't get an exercise bike, for instance, uh, covered through Medicare. Uh, it has to be, uh, it can't be an environmental improvement. <clears throat> so you can't, uh, uh, a stair glide in the house is not covered. That's an environmental improvement. Hand controls in an automobile are not covered. It's an environmental improvement. And then the last thing, and, the, and probably the most controversial, is it can't be a safety item. Uh, so once you go right through the bathroom door, anything in the bathroom is considered a, a safety item the only piece of equipment that's accepted in that is a uh, over toilet commode, which can be you know, has to be prescribed as a bedside commode, and then it can be used over toilet. But uh, um, so anything that's a safety item, we we have uh, a lot of lobbying up on on Capitol Hill over the years that have uh, you know kind of explored that because it makes no sense to you know pay forty fifty thousand dollars for a fractured hip uh, when you can pay $50 to have a grab bar put into somebody's bathroom. But, uh, um, you know, Medicare follows these 
those four items, you know, it has to be durable, it can't be used in the absence of illness or injury, uh, can't be an environmental improvement, and can't be primarily a safety item. Uh, so it has to be really something that's medically necessary and that's <clears throat> acting on improving whatever that underlying chronic condition is. Probably the most controversial item right now is the hospital bed because the, uh, for instance, the high-low function on a hospital bed, meaning that the, the part of the bed that goes up and down uh, about 10 years ago was excluded from the Medicare program. So Medicare will pay for a semi-electric bed where your head comes up and your feet come up, but they didn't. They decided that the high-low function was more of a, uh, a help to the caregiver as opposed to something that's medically necessary. And then, you know, again, if you if you've cared for anybody in a bed and you need to get them in and out of the bed, you realize very quickly that raising the bed and lowering the bed uh, goes a long way to getting them in and out safely. But again, there's the buzzword safety that comes into it that, uh, again, is not primarily medical. So I kind of went off the off the rails there on on durable. That's Literally, I can't actually believe that in the past 10 years, I never looked up what the definition of durable medical equipment was. That was amazing. So that explains a lot. I didn't realize that the safety component, because, and I don't want to sort of jump too far ahead, but that the high-low function that you're talking about, we often would see that ordered in assisted livings, and they would want that because they would want to put the bed low so that folks who might be getting out of bed in the middle of the night would sort of roll out of bed as opposed to fall out of bed and it would reduce the chances of them breaking a hip or injuring themselves in some other way. So we were actually using it sort of off label to some extent, right. like they needed a hospital bed, but they didn't really need the high low function for what we thought they were using it for. Exactly. And, and a lot of times it's ordered for caregivers. You know, if, if you've ever changed somebody in a bed or done a wound dressing or, or, uh, giving somebody a bath in bed, um, you know, getting the bed up to uh, 25 or 30 inches high is, uh, you know, a decent thing in terms of people's backs leaning over. And, and uh, but again, it's not addressing the underlying uh, medical condition of the patient. So. The underlying medical condition. Right. So we're going to play a fun game, Steve. I'm going to name something and you're going to tell me if it is durable medical equipment covered by Medicare. Are you ready? Are you excited? I'm so excited for this game. Okay. All day long on the phone. So All the time. Yeah, no, right. This is like your regular job, but this is like fun game time for Amy. Okay. Uh, a hospital bed. Is uh -huh. that DME? Yes. A hospital bed is DME. Uh, now. Is, now yeah. it can, it, you know, again, it meets the definition. It can stand repeated use. It can be used um, to improve somebody's underlying medical condition. Now, Within that hospital bed, we just described the, the, the various functions. So there's levels of hospital beds. Yep. And the, uh, uh, the high-low function, which is something that most folks do want to have, is the only part of the bed that is not covered. Got it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you as sort of like Joe Blow doctor, and I'm going to tell you what I know about hospital beds, and then you, as part of this fun game, are going to tell me if I'm right. So there's... Medicare pays for standard something called the semi-electric bed, which means the head goes up, the feet go up, but there's a crank function that actually l controls the high-low function. That's the standard hospital bed, correct? Yeah, and it doesn't actually have to have the crank function on it. Oh. Again, the crank function is something that uh, is an additional expense when you're acquiring the bed. Um, most people providing hospital beds put it on as a, as a matter of civility because then you can raise and lower the height of the bed. Great. But that's absolutely not required. And they do make semi-electric hospital beds that you can set in three different settings, um, you know, by adjusting the head and the footboard. Uh, those are the less expensive ones. But again, they, they meet Medicare's criteria. Um, and so you can set the bed either low, medium, or high. But then it's... Right. Why is it called semi-electric? Well, full is it plug into the wall? Well, now, full electric is um, a, a six-function hand control. You have the head goes up, the feet goes up, and the overall height of the bed goes up and down. A semi-electric bed has a four-function hand control where just the head comes up electrically and the feet comes up electrically. The, the medical criteria for a hospital bed, the underlying thing is that you need to have frequent and immediate change in body position, you know, to alleviate pain or to alleviate some kind of respiratory uh, problem or to alleviate, you know, a, a choking problem. You, you need to be able to change the head or the feet quickly 
to correct a medical condition that can get out of hand very quickly. So that's that's the right. right. The, the Alex, about. we're going to have an entire podcast on hospital beds only. I've decided, like literally, this is it's just going to keep going. All right, so we've decided there's hospital beds. So there's semi-electric. There's full electric, and then there's high-low. What is the distinction between high-low and full electric? Well, high-low high is kind of a, a misnomer. There, you've forgotten that there's also a manual bed. Oh, of uh, course, there's a manual bed, right? We have seen this, you know, we Does Medicare seen... actually pay you to use one of those? Because it seems right. like... <laughs> yeah, we have to, um, again, the, this gets back to the frequent immediate change in body position. Um, I haven't seen a manual bed ordered in, in probably 20 years. Great. It is on the fee schedule. It, you know, it's on all of the uh, things that we contract for with them. Um, but it, a manual bed basically has three cranks at the end of it. So you have to crank the head up. You have to crank the feet up. Um, but it, it doesn't give you that immediate change, and the patient can't control it himself so or herself. And so that is very – it's not ordered very often. High-low is the, the uh, it, it's kind of an out-of-date term, but it really uh, refers to the, the bed being able to go up and down on its own. Uh, it's a type of full electric bed, though. Yeah, well, no, a, a full electric bed implies high-low. Oh, it implies high-low. So basically, if we say high-low bed, it is a full electric bed. And that is an additional cost over and above what Medicare will pay for. Medicare doesn't pay for the full electric. It pays for the semi-electric. And then when you want to kind of like spice it up a little bit, it, you have to pay extra. Well, well so, yeah, several years ago, Medicare did realize that there was deluxe equipment out there and that there was an underlying, um, you know, that, that they pay for the basic types of equipment. You know, again, the semi-electric bed versus the fully electric bed. So they did um, allow for an, an option for people to be able to upgrade equipment, provided they were given um real good advance, they call it advanced beneficiary notice that it's a non-covered item. They didn't want to see suppliers or doctors or anybody um, loading stuff onto people that they didn't need or they didn't really have the choice in doing. Got so we have, we have to do a lot of full disclosure. You know, if somebody wants to get a rollator as opposed to a rolling walker, that, that's a whole nother rabbit hole we can run right. down. Oh, perfect. You just walk right into the next thing. So we've established as part of our fun game where I pepper you with questions. So a a hospital bed is durable medical equipment. Is a wheelchair a is a wheelchair DME? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. and and wheelchairs um, come in I don't know four thousand shapes and sizes. And uh -huh. will Medicare just pay for any old wheelchair, or like how does how does Medicare sort of see wheelchairs in terms of its variety? It's a, this this is a, a real kind of complex area, and we, we, you can stop me. If okay, we a whole other podcast on wheelchairs too noted. Okay, keep going. Well, I'll stop you in the middle if we need to kind of keep moving. But yeah, give me the basics. Yeah, there are a couple of cuts that you need to make when you're talking about wheelchairs. Uh, the first thing is, is, are you talking about a power wheelchair or are you talking about a manual wheelchair? And then when you're talking about manual wheelchairs, you need to make the cut of, are you talking about a basic uh, wheelchair that would be appropriate for a geriatric patient? Um, or are you talking about a complex rehab wheelchair that would be appropriate for somebody with a spinal cord injury or, or advanced multiple sclerosis or, or something that would require complex rehab fitting? Now, the complex world um, broke off from the DME world solidly, I want to say about 20 years ago. It used to be every company did everything. And we've seen, you know, respiratory has kind of moved into its own specialty um, and sleep is its own specialty. And complex rehab wheelchairs are their own specialties. And people that call up here looking for, you know, I, I want a tilt in space for my mother with, you know, electric tilt and, and head support and all of the things that you would see typically on, say, a, uh, a child with cerebral palsy. Um, there's a whole different area of fitting that goes on with that, and we will refer them to seating clinics. Uh, there are a number of good ones in the area, one down at Mount Vernon Hospital, one at NRH, and I, you know, I think Adventist Rehab has a seating clinic. But basically, for those more complex things, there's, you have a higher level of reimbursement that you can get from Medicare and a higher level of quality of cushions and, and things by going through a seating clinic and having an evaluation done. Um, Getting a power chair, um, you know, through a regular process uh, with dealing with a, a medical equipment company and, and having a doctor write it is almost like an act of God. I mean, the, the <laughs> is so intense. That's why Medicare actually reimburses physicians for spending the time to fill out the twelve to seventeen thousand page document in order to get a power wheelchair. 
Like yeah. Medicare pays for you to fill that paperwork out. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. Not only does it pay for you to provide it, but it pays for the doctor to order. It's crazy. Yeah. So wait, can I interrupt? What is a seating clinic? I've never heard that term before. Uh, a seating clinic is a, um, uh, it's actually a physical place uh, that you go to, and it's usually attached to a rehabilitation um, uh, hospital or, or it, well, it's in, in our area, it's attached to a real rehabilitation hospital. And they have a um, uh, certified people there in the DME business that's called an ATP, which is an assistive device professional um, that brings in equipment, works with the OTs and PTs, and the, and the patient there uh, trying out different things. They use uh, pressure mapping for their, their seating to determine cushions. There's a whole, there's probably a two or three hour evaluation that goes on. It could be multiple evaluations to get the right piece of equipment uh, for somebody. Um, and again, you're dealing with much more involved kinds of cases. Um, so so the, the idea is, is that there's a collaboration between equipment provider, doctor, and, and uh, occupational therapist to come up with the optimum piece of equipment. And in the case of children, it's, it's critically important because you're, you know, you're buying a $10,000 piece of equipment and the child's going to grow out of it in a year. So you have to have uh, the ability to expand the chair they're in to growth. You have to have, it's a much more complicated thing than, than uh, fitting an 85 year old uh, geriatric patient. Uh, right. So if I was a doctor speaking of that, so if I, sorry to interrupt, cause you told me I could interrupt you. So I'm interrupting you to ask you if I am, a geriatrician, an internist, uh, a, a physical therapist who's going to be guiding a physician who might be ordering a wheelchair for an 85-year-old dementia patient, what are my choices for for um, wheelchairs? Okay, your choices there, and, and we're, we're, the, the vernacular has kind of been driven by the uh, Medicare pricing model, which is the K codes. Um, you have a K1, K2, K3, K4, you know, K5 and 6, uh, you're, you're starting to get into the, the bariatric equipment and, and the, the higher end equipment. But 90% of the time, you're going to be ordering a uh, probably a K3 wheelchair. And, and to describe them, K1 is a standard wheelchair. K2 is a hemi wheelchair, which is a low seat model. The, the term hemi wheelchair comes from uh, hemiparesis. They were designed originally for people with a stroke um, that needed to get good foot contact on the floor to be able to propel the chair on their own because they only had one foot and one arm. So you use the arm as the gas and the foot as the steering wheel. So the Hemi chair was a typical wheelchair has a uh, uh, 17 inch uh, or 18 inch seat to floor uh, height. And then a Hemi wheelchair will have a 16 inch seat to floor. So it drops you down two inches. Um, and we'll typically you know, look for that being ordered if anybody's five, four and below. And they're and they're foot propelling, meaning that you know part of their getting around is using their feet to uh, move the chair. Um, and then so K three, that's K two. K three is a light, a standard lightweight chair, uh, which is probably the most ordered chair because it presumes that a, a heavier chair, a K one, is not. Um, uh, a lot of people can't propel it; they're too heavy. We're talking about a, a forty pound chair at a K one. And then you get to a K3 and you're back into the low 30s. Um, the, the interesting thing is that the Hemi chair is really a K2 with just a lowered seat. So you're, the way the wheelchairs are made right now, you can take a K3 and switch it into Hemi height, um, you know, almost at will. It takes about 15 minutes to do it. So uh, wait, Steve, quick question. I am just like the dumb doctor who's just out in the community. How in the world is a doctor supposed to know any of this? I'm not going to lie. I do know about the K's and the this and the that. And at one time I really understood this stuff, but like, I feel as though things have gotten so complicated. You, you can't know all of this. How do doctors order wheelchairs? Well, like how, like how would any doctor know what to do? Yeah. Well, there, there are uh, a couple of ways that they're being ordered right now. We're, we're, um, we're using a uh, an ordering portal that parachute, that, yeah, parachute that uh, I, I think Alex, I saw that you know Dave Gelbart. He's a good friend of ours uh, who started Parachute, which is an ordering portal. Again, the ordering portals you have to be very careful with because um, one of the things that Medicare has had fraud and abuse problems with is is uh, orders that are just stamped out without any thought to them and uh, and. 
so anything that looks like it's a template or anything that looks like it's just being uh, uh, put in front of a doctor for a stamp and a signature um, is no longer being accepted under audit by Medicare. <laughs> You've got to get, you've got to get, when I talk about this uh, with therapists and at clinics, I mean, it it is literally easier to get codone than it is to get a walker uh, as far as justification from a doctor's standpoint. Um, Notes, we have. Can you repeat that? I would like to you to repeat that statement. It's so profound. It is easier to get a prescription filled for oxycodone than it is to get a walker (laughs) for Medicare. From a doctor's standpoint, I mean, as far as yeah. documentation required. And uh, can you? <laughs> I was astra- waiting for him to kick in. I was waiting for I, Alex's like mind my, to finally blow. I'm yeah. just astounded by what you just said, which is that any order that looks like a template uh, could or should be or would be rejected. So if you make it a standardized process for the doctors to order these, then that's going to get rejected. Like, what do they want? Like an essay from the doctor? (laughs) Well, that, you know, it's true. The actual detailed written order can be in a, and and this is, Amy, getting back to your question of how does a doctor order it? We have a, we have a template detailed written order where you check off, hey, it's an 18 inch by 16 inch seat. Hey, it's a K3 wheelchair I want. Hey, I want to a back and a cushion with it. And so those items can be checked off and signed on. But the the kicker comes in is that the notes have to reflect um, that you've had a discussion with the patient about those items and or, or, or has to show medical necessity uh, for those items um, in, in your uh, chart notes. And we need a copy of the, we don't need a copy of the entire chart note. We need a copy of the notes that say that that this is going on. And so this is a new thing, right? To have a copy of the chart notes. It used to be like you would just sort of like randomly get a prescription pad. You'd be like one wheelchair signed Dr. Schiffman. Here you go. Right? right. Like that used to be how it went. Now it's it's no, no, you have to say that if you want a lightweight wheelchair, you have to rule out the fact that you can propel a standard wheel or you can't propel a standard wheelchair. Oh jeez. If, if you want <laughs> Alex a- breathe. <laughs> So how is a doctor supposed to know what to write in their medical? They have no idea. No, no. It it basically becomes this dialogue like, hey, is this okay? No, that's not okay. But we can't tell you what to really write. So try again. Okay, no, it's illegal for us to tell you how to frame this conversation. So we're going to basically put you in a restaurant and be like, order what you want. I want, you know, chicken chow fun. Nope, nope. No, we're, we're, I'm not telling you what kind of restaurant we're in, but it's not that kind. And so you just go back and forth like this. I mean, is, the, is it a wonder that physician suicide rate is so high? I mean, this is crazy. No, no. And, 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 the, uh, you know, when and we digress. You know, in the industry, uh, uh, and, and I've done a lot of work on, on Capitol Hill. I was the uh, chairman of the American Association for Home Care for the last three years, and and we're constantly trying to get this revised. And, and when we've agreed in the past as an industry to, to have certain things come into play, um, it's always with the understanding that Medicare is going to be doing extensive training to the physician community, and that somehow never happens. Why are they and, talking well, about well, so you know what they consider extensive training is- A new they, website. A new, well, a new they, yeah, they create a web page or a PDF document with 55,000 pages of details about some new thing that doctors have a lot of time to search for and read, right? I mean, that's crazy. It's yeah. insane. It's insane. There is mild insanity to every single topic that has to do with Medicare. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. The amount of it, the, the thing that blows my mind um, is, uh, the thing that blows my mind is that we, how could a doctor know the difference between a K1, a K2, and the seat raise? And, and by the way, I remember, I have this distinct memory, Steve, of like trying to order a wheelchair and then be like, do you want armrests? Well, yeah, I do want those. You know, like you have to order it like piece by piece. It's like ordering a car. Steering wheel? Yeah. Wheel? Check. Front seat? Yep. Also a side seat. Yeah, I would like a back seat also. Like, it's sort of like they make you order this thing in like pieces. And it's kind of, it's just like a Lego thing that they just don't give you some of the, I mean, I, I just don't get it. Like, how are doctors supposed to know this? I mean, Steve, can I get a little bit of like kudos? Like I did kind of figure a lot of this out and it was really important in my training of my providers. Alex, you're one of the only people that uh, 
took the time to come over here and actually kick the tires and, and uh, see what was going on on our end to better understand uh, what you were ordering. And, and uh, I think, you know, taking a walk through the warehouse, uh, it explains a lot. And, you know, I've got to say in defense of Medicare, you know, again, they get, they get a bad rap on all, a lot of this. They have had to police a, a crazy industry. I mean, our industry, yeah. uh, because of the ease of getting provider numbers, um, you know, we, whenever we went down to Capitol Hill, we were always fighting the uh, guys that are on Channel 9 and 11 o'clock, slamming things down people's throats. Um, and then, you know, and there's well-publicized, you know, power chair sales from companies that are on the tarmac at Dade County in Miami, you know, with people that have no business being in the, uh, in the industry. So they've done a lot with accreditation. They've done a lot with, with uh, pricing, but they've also, uh, you know, done a lot, I think, the overcomplication of this is a defense against uh, people just jumping in and, and you know, it's their, their kind of vain attempt at trying to keep the industry uh, clean. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they throw the baby out with the bathwater because it uh, overcomplicating it just, you know, makes either equipment unavailable to people or uh, it certainly puts extra stress on uh, the time that physicians have, which is limited. And this is, you know, your, your, your commodity is time. And if you've got to spend an hour putting together a wheelchair um, prescription, there, there's something wrong with the system, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems okay. like every yeah. week there's a new story about some sort of DME fraud, uh, you know, uh, in Florida or Texas, it always seems like. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they have large... Florida and Texas. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's like the bank robber that said, I, I rob banks because that's where the money is. That's know? right. That's right. Where the are. So, um, so but we're not, but we're not done. We're not done with our fun game. Oh, you oh yeah. Keep more going. Questions. Okay. So we've got, okay. So we've got hospital beds and we've got wheelchairs. We could have like four podcasts on each of those. Then walkers. Yes. That's yep. considered. Yeah. And then, and, uh, the industry we call, you know, we, we, we call all this stuff bent metal. Um, <laughs> oh, Hey, excuse me. Are you still there? Yeah, we're here. We're here. Did you lose your audio, Steve? Oh, no, he oh. actually dropped completely. Okay, we'll edit this out. Well, we can keep recording uh, while he logs back in. Yeah. So, so Amy, I, while we wait for Steve yeah. to log back in, um, so what was the most common uh, DME that you would order in your house call practice? Oh, always a hospital bed. We would get to people's homes and it would be kind of amazing. We didn't order a lot of wheelchairs because you have to be able to, and Steve will get back on and talk about this. Wheelchairs are actually intended for indoor use. It's not really, there are transport wheelchairs, but I don't think Medicare pays for a transport wheelchair. They only pay for wheelchairs that can be used in someone's home. So, and when we would get to people's houses, the first thing they say is, where do you sleep? The bed. A, a recliner, you know, I can't breathe, 19 pillows, like whatever it is. And the very first thing we would do is get a wheel, is get a, excuse me, a hospital bed into their home. So that became my, like, we were really good at ordering hospital beds. And we had a drop down list templated in our EMR that would say, because you need, I think, you needed three reasons why the person would need a hospital bed, like A, B, or C. And it would be like, needs to be at this degree so that they can breathe because they've got COPD or to assuage pain, or there was all sorts of different things. So we could get those different reasons into the chart note by temp. We did template it, but it was still a drop down. So it, when the dialogue came out, it looked, you know, it looked like a real, like, I believe this patient needs a hospital bed because they have this, 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 and this, and we would be able to, you know, put in their medical problems. And that would be the sort of the, the written part of that order that they needed. And it would what be was, in our chart note. What was the process in terms of like, uh, w what if you hadn't ordered it correctly? Who would find out first? Was would the DME company so or the how, DME? Yeah. The D so first off, they're not even going to submit to Medicare for payment or even a, the attempt to deliver without about twenty five different steps. They number one had to make sure you had Medicare Part B. So we, whenever we sent over an order, they would also do a Medicare check. So we would do a Medicare check, and then they would do a Medicare check, make sure that they were going to get paid. And then if they knew they would get paid, then they would say, okay, do we have all the pieces of this puzzle? Number one, do we have permission to deliver it? Do we have the chart note that supports it? Do we have an order that supports it? Um, 
if the patient is going to want to have something more than just a standard electric bed, do we have uh, proof of payment that we can jack up the price? So I think we've talked about this, but Medicare is basically a rent to own, lease to own system. And so basically, because it's a lease to own system, it's a 13 months of Medicare paying about $99 a month for a semi-electric bed. So Medicare will pay up to $1,300 for that semi-electric bed. And after that, the patient owns it outright. It's a life. It's basically, I think you own it for, for the rest of your life, and, but you can't get another bed for five more years. So we knew that when we were starting this process, we said we want for Medicare to pay for as much of the stuff as possible for this person. So we would make sure that they understood that they're getting a semi-electric bed. Medicare is going to pay for it completely for them, except for their copay, because it's a Part B, so it's 80-20. So they're going to have to pay 20% on the cost unless they're their you know, secondary insurance will sort of kick in for the rest. And for 13 months, Medicare will pay $99 per month. Now, if they wanted a full electric bed, they would have to pay an additional, you know, between, I don't know, when Steve comes back, he'll tell us it's between 70 and 100 extra dollars per month on top of their Part B copay, unless they had a good secondary insurance. But the semi-electric was the standard. And then if you wanted to sort of get more stuff, you would have to pay. And that included... Um, you know, if you wanted, I, I'm not really sure about the standard, um, of the, uh, mattresses because the mattresses themselves, there's also standardized. So you get a standard bed and a standard mattress with every standard hospital bed. That's what we call a semi-electric. So for $99 a month, you get that whole package. There's a difference. You could get different types of side rails. Like if you're in assisted living, you can only certain get certain types of side rails. You can get a half rail or a full rail or whatever the case may be. You could not have all of the bells and whistles and have Medicare pay for it. But if you have an American Express card, like I always say, you can get all of that stuff. So they would need to have that in order. Okay, did the doctor want for the person to have a semi-electric or a full electric? Oh, they want a full electric? Great. Not only do we need to hi Steve. Not right. only do we need not only do we need to have all of the um records that prove the patient actually like needs the hospital bed, but we have to probably have proof of payment. So Steve, I'm going to catch you up just briefly and, and, and tell you where we landed. We took a brief uh, interlude and we're discussing how does, how does it, the back and forth sometimes look between a physician and a durable medical equipment company like yourself? So if I, and I always use Spectrum. So um, when I would send an order over, and this was before Parachute. So I'm going pre-Parachute because I think most people are not on Parachute. So mm -hmm. I kind of like to talk about it in the non-Parachute world because that's really very, um, it, it helps the provider, the geriatric care manager, whoever is going to be helping or participating in the ordering of DME to kind of really understand the nuts and bolts. So what I said was I had a drop down menu in my electronic medical record that would basically say they had certain medical problems and we knew what they would be in order for Medicare to pay for the standard semi-electric bed. And then what I said was, is I would then send over the order and my chart note, and then you guys would make sure that A, the patient had Part B Medicare that we had the right stuff in the chart note, that the order looked correct, and that if we wanted to jack it up and do a full electric, that you would have to call and verify that the patient's family member, representative, or patient themselves would be willing to then pay for that extra cost. We then talked a little bit about the fact that this is a lease from Medicare that you end up owning it at the end of 13 months. So that, and I, and I was remembering, and Steve, this is where we're gonna sort of have a little fun with my fun game of peppering you with, is this DME? a standard semi-electric hospital bed, Medicare reimburses you guys X amount of dollars, like 99 bucks per month kind of thing. Is that basically what it is? More, it's more like 60 now. Oh, sweet. It went down. That's even better. So 60 bucks a month for 12 months. So $720. Does it uh, pay for itself? Barely. Barely. I mean, th this is we can go down a whole another rabbit hole with uh, talking about competitive bidding and how the pricing has uh, come down on all this equipment. But I think let's get back to your question about the interaction between the doctor and the DME company. Yeah. Uh, what we typically do is it, it, it has to be a little bit of a collaborative effort. And, and generally what will happen is a care manager or a, a physician's assistant will call us and say, hey, uh, Dr. So-and-so wants to order a wheelchair. 
Um, we'll go through some of the specifications with them. The first thing we ask anybody that calls in here is their height and weight, because you have to you have to determine very quickly if you're dealing with somebody that's in a bariatric world or somebody who's particularly small. And, and wheelchairs, again, the three flavors that are pretty interchangeable are the, the narrow adult, the standard adult, and then the, the uh, heavier adult. So it's a 16-inch seat, an 18-inch seat, or a 20-inch seat. And all of those fall within Medicare's um, uh, coverage criteria. So you want to you get the proper seat for somebody right away. So we'll have that discussion. And then uh, frequently what we do, if, if the office doesn't order or the person doesn't order a lot of equipment, we'll send over um, a copy of our detailed written order that has all of the uh, boxes checked on it, and then a copy of what the, the uh, notes need to refer to. And again, they can't just sign the notes and send them back to us. Uh, they have to be incorporated personally into the, uh, uh, the chart notes that, that shows that there was discussion and thought about ordering these particular things. It sounds a lot more complicated than it is, but, you know, again, if, if people are ordering things <coughs> quickly, it, um, you know, it's, it's a couple of sentences that need to just meet uh, what's called Medicare's local coverage uh, determination. LCD is kind of what drives all of this. And uh, every piece of equipment has its own LCD. And, um, you know, some of them are, are antiquated, you know, to get a reclining wheelchair you either have to be highly susceptible to decubitus ulcers and unable to do a functional weight shift, or you have to be self-catheterizing. You know, it has nothing to do with the fact that you spend eight hours a day or 10 hours a day sitting in a nursing home in a wheelchair and you need to go back and forth a little bit. Um, so if those two things are not in the, the uh, order, or one of those two things is not in the order for a reclining wheelchair, it will be denied on, uh, uh, on review or on audit. And um, the, again, the industry, we've been arguing for years about clinical inference as opposed to, you know, a lot of time, you know, if somebody's had MS for 30 years and they're on their third wheelchair, you're wondering, why am I having to even prescribe this or, or discuss this? I mean, it, it seems a little ridiculous. But Medicare has not made the leap into uh, accepting clinical inference at, at the audit level. And um, we've made- I've never heard the term clinical inference in my life it's kind of profound. Like it's part of the expected course of that illness that somebody with MS, ALS, blah, 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 is going to have this stuff. Cord injury. I mean, why, why are you justifying a spinal cord injury for the third time? Clinical know? inference. Brilliant. Yeah. We should all use a little bit more of that. Well, it, it is. And, and then it, you're, you're thinking and, and looking at the whole patient in that sort of a situation. Uh, you know, for years, the guy 30 years old is going to school or going to work with a spinal cord injury was getting the same LCD as an 85-year-old with prostate cancer. You know, so the, the, uh, it's taken a lot to kind of unglue, you know, what, what they're looking at in terms of the individual patients. But, uh, and it's an ongoing fight. Sure. I, I mean, I, I want to just reflect for a moment. I think I may have said in a previous podcast, you know, as part of my house calls practice, we would go into, you know, lots of different people's homes. And I would go in, I'd be like, oh, that's where a quarter of a million dollars is. I was looking for that, right? We would see three bariatric beds, three bariatric wheelchairs, three this, three of that, you know, because over time, people collect DME. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of dollars of DME was, I went into one house, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, like, Medicare. This is, this is $100,000 just sitting right here in this person's room. Yeah. Is there a secondary market? Uh, it's pretty limited um, in terms of um, particularly the power stuff because of how individual it is. Medicare, you know, kind of attacked that problem, Amy, a few years ago, and they, they limited, uh, actually several years ago, um, they limited the amount of equipment they'll buy for somebody in a five-year period. For instance, you can't get a second wheelchair in five years. You can't get a second bed in five years. You know, pretty much any standard DME, unless it's been stolen or damaged beyond control. And, and uh, in those cases, proving that is, is, you know, sometimes I just want to give it away. It's easier to give them the patient the equipment than it is to prove that uh, something was stolen in terms of what Medicare looks for. But the, the, the bottom line is, that, yes, there, there's been uh, uh, a lot of waste uh, a lot of accumulation. And then there, there's technology changes. I'm sure if you go in that same house, you're going to see three or four different generations of power chairs. So it's, you know, it's like automobiles. They get better. Yeah. At yeah. 
people want to have the, the latest model. Uh, the other Oh, we, sorry. I just wanted to interrupt really quick. Just the, the issue that I did bring up with wheelchairs is wheelchairs are not intended for outdoor use. A wheelchair that is ordered is supposed to be able to be used indoors, correct? That's correct. The, the, this is another uh, big thing. The durable medical equipment is ordered principally to um, accommodate activities of daily living that are limited by whatever the disease process is. And that the inference on that is that it's in the home. Um, so if something is being ordered specifically to get somebody out of the home uh, and it's ordered that way, it's not a covered item. Uh, like, as an example, a transport wheelchair, not covered by Medicare. Well, a transport wheelchair, it's interesting. They have those on the, on the fee schedule, but they, they kind of also defeat the LCD because in order to get a wheelchair covered, uh, you have to be able to propel it on your own. You have to be willing and able to propel it. And there's no way to put a uh, transport wheelchair for folks that don't know what that is, is a, uh, is a wheelchair with, with uh, four eight-inch casters as opposed to a standard wheelchair that has two eight-inch casters in the front and then it has a 24-inch wheel on the back that everybody's familiar with. And it has the, uh, the, the trim ring that you grab onto to propel the chair. Right. So the transport chair is more designed to be able to push somebody to the movies or I guess we don't go to movies anymore. Uh, <laughs> Pre-pandemic stuff, yeah. Um, and, and it's easy, you know, the back folds down on it and you can throw it in the car real easily. So it's it's very, very um, friendly to the uh, person, who, or the caregiver, and, and not necessarily primarily medical in nature. Now, if you call Medicare, they're going to tell you a transport chair is covered and, you know, we go back and forth on all of this. But, but uh, again, it doesn't, it doesn't meet the criteria of being able to self-propel. Okay, so we've got, okay, Alex, you go. I'm going to keep peppering. Yeah, I have a series of questions that I've been accumulating here. Um, so what are the most common reasons that a DME order gets rejected? And, it, you know, if you have an audience of physicians here, what do you, and you, you have a billboard, like what would you put on that billboard in terms of teaching them how to order DME better? The, the number one thing and, and, the, and the key thing is the notes. You know, if, if and, and, um, you know, having the uh, office understand that those notes have to be in the uh, the physician's record. You know, again, we can we can tell you we can send a piece of paper over that says, "Hey, you need frequent immediate change in body position to alleviate pain to get a bed." But that that actual note, and and we're looking for it pretty much verbatim because when we go to an audit, if we're audited, that's what the auditors are looking for, and they're not looking for clinical inference. You know, they they don't want to know. You know, just because right. you you have a diagnosis that's obviously got you in pain, it needs to be stated in the notes that that was uh, the case. So Steve, has anybody created or do you provide or do others provide a cheat sheet that says, here are the 10 or 20 most common conditions. Here is an example of what the note should say or what the key elements are that should be in your note. Yes. Yes. Now, again, we, we, we walk a tightrope there because we're not allowed to coach. And, um, you know, this had, when we were doing a lot of work with power chairs, it became a real tricky thing because there was back and forth three or four times to get notes um, correct on stuff. And, at, you know, at some point we have to say, hey, we've, we've coached too much. You've got to take this to another uh, another vendor because they're not looking for us to, to write the stuff that is essentially going to get us paid. I mean, this is where the fraud and abuse problem uh this is so crazy. So can, can you unpack that a little bit about what does that mean you're not allowed to coach and what could happen to you or the physician? Uh, well, the, 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 I guess the fraud and abuse problem stems, you know, if you go back a few years, there were some very well-publicized cases, particularly uh, with the scooter store, for instance, where um, they were hammering out template notes and template uh, orders that met every point on the local coverage determination, the LCD. And then, um, and then actually they were leaning on physicians hard. Uh, part of the, the uh, indictment against the scooter store involved the fact that they were bullying physicians into signing things that they didn't necessarily agree to uh, in order to get people, you know, uh, scooters that were not really medically necessary. And so that it becomes a, a uh, 
uh, a tipping point right there where we, you know, we're hoping that, that folks in our industry, but, you know, you, you, again, you, you've got new people, you've got uh, people that are unscrupulous that you have to be careful of. The idea is, is that the physician was the, the uh, kind of watch, you know, the, the, the gatekeeper of the yeah. Medicare program as far as durable medical equipment. And what happened back in, uh, and actually, you know, to digress for a second, the when the Medicare program was was developed, you know, back in the '60s, it was a perfect model because you had the 20% that was paid by the patient, and 80% was paid by the government. And when that model was enforced through the '70s, it worked beautifully because the patient paid attention to the bill and the patient mm. ordered what they needed. Mm. As soon as you know, in the early '80s, when coinsurance came into existence and you were able to purchase the the coverage for the 20% it became an entitlement program. I mean, everybody took their eye off the ball and there was no gate. Mm. That is a really interesting observation that the patient used to be the check on fraud and abuse because they carried 20% of the expense on Part B services. And when you take that away, all of a sudden, the, the, the opportunity for fraud is too, it's just too tempting. Yeah. Um, uh, that's really, really interesting. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Yeah, you know, it, it, it makes me think, like, it's it's a real shame that that we've ended up in the situation that we are in because we've made it so difficult for physicians that the patient is the patients who need these aren't, aren't getting them or getting them fast enough, and that's a real, real shame. It makes me think of other possible solutions. You know, what if you could just order... Uh, you know, a wheelchair by just writing wheelchair, uh, but uh, uh, and not have to know all this complexity as the physician. Uh, but maybe I, I don't know, maybe if there were a third party auditor who was a, you know, a, a trusted entity who would access the medical record, review it, use the kind of the, the clinical inference that you mentioned to say, yeah, this is obvious. This patient needs a wheelchair. I put my stamp of approval and I, I am like, you know, KPMG or some other third party auditor that the government trusts. And so make it easy for the doctor, but still use this as a stop against fraud. I don't know. Is there anything oh, like that? Well, oh, wow. Can I wait? Hold on. Before Steve, you go on, Alex, can I just ask is your idea and this thing that you just said kind of like saying the ROI on having DME in the home is actually very high. If you give somebody these certain things, they will have a much less chance of maybe going back to the hospital, falling. Sure. Um, and that if you were somebody who had a ton of medical records and you said, wow, this is potentially an underused re resource with a huge ROI, you could sort of in bulk sort of sweep people's medical records and be like, why don't Bob, Sam, Janet, and Fred who work in your company or work or in your insurance company or in your sort of, are, you know, beneficiaries of your insurance company, why don't they have these things? Why aren't you supplying them with DME? And that, and like look for stuff in chart notes that would sort of cue you up to think, oh my gosh, why don't we have DME for these people? Kind of like you might do it for, why don't they have home health? Why aren't they getting house calls? Why aren't they getting physical therapy? So you could be sweeping people's documents for underutilized high ROI things. Well, that's an interesting concept too. That's not really what I was saying. I was saying, in, in, for in, how about instead of Medicare putting the burden on the physician to you know, throw the dart and hit the documentation blindly, like without any coaching or guidance, like clearly that is leaving a lot of patients without the equipment that they need, right? That must be the end result of that. Uh, and, and they've done that because it's their only defense against the rampant fraud and abuse. Uh, and it is good to stop fraud and abuse. So let's come up with a better system. You, you can't keep putting more and more burden and complexity on the physician and expect that you're not going to have bad outcomes for patients. Like well, that's let's back up a second. The, the fraud yeah. and abuse has gotten much, much better in recent times. I mean, the industry is policing itself. Um, accreditation came into play back in the, uh, I think it's around 2009, mandatory accreditation became part of our industry. So, uh, uh, and, the, and, the, and the accreditation is actually very, very, um, it's a strenuous process to go through. You know, JACO and CHAP and all of those uh, have a DME component now that uh, uh, you have to do that. So the, the, the fraud and abuse, um, the threat of it is um, always there. And, and yeah. providers are going are gonna to be there. And there's always, you know, four or five times a year now, there's a huge, you know, million, billion dollar case that is broken where... Uh, there, you know, there's there's something going on. 
DME is an you know it's an interesting component because I, I talk to a lot of people about it, and and my recommendation generally always is get home and see if you need it. You know, some people some people view it um, as a, um, a a negative in their life. You know, this is holding me back. You know, I can't get around. Um, and so when I'm talking to people, you know, a lot of people will come in and, and want to buy things uh, in advance of their surgery. And, and my answer is always get home. You know, first of all, you're going to go through uh, therapy at the hospital. They're going to order a few things if you need it that's appropriate. It's usually all typical stuff. Um, and then get home and, and don't, don't solve a problem until you have it. Um, and then again, getting back to your point with the doctors, the, the, the one uh, group of people that don't get enough credit are the... Uh, are the home health OTs and, and PTs that are out there. And they're generally making the recommendations back to the doctors on uh, what equipment is appropriate for people in the home. Yeah, so Steve, I just wanna interject just really quickly. I agree, I need to sort of pile on and say that PTs and OTs are the most important partners in DME ordering that you could possibly have. The one thing I would say to my providers, so. I said, listen, you can figure out K1, 2, 3, blah, 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 and all the different pieces, but do not, do not hesitate to put a physical therapist in there immediately when you think there's going to be, you know, a durable medical equipment order that will be required. Why guess? Why, why do we, why are we, this is what they are trained to do. So what it used to be was, is that if somebody went into the home and I was like, oh my gosh, they need a, a hospital bed. Some of that was really easy, but as soon as it came to wheelchairs and walkers and recommendations for other types of stuff, I would put Part A home health in place immediately. Immediately. Why not? Or, or Part B, actually. So Part A or Part B physical therapy in the home. Come in. Let someone do a home safety assessment. Let somebody look at what the person's functional limitations really are and tell me how to order this very complex thing. Because wheelchairs are not just hard. Walkers are hard beds, they would come up with other different ideas. And it's like not, again, not knowing what kind of restaurant you're sitting in and they know the restaurant that they're sitting in. So sure. sorry. I, yeah. They're just amazing um, adjuncts to this process. It's also a smorgasbord of what's covered and what's not. You know, again, a lot of times you need bathroom equipment and that's not covered, but you need a bath seat or do you need a transfer bench? Or if you need a transfer bench, do you have a, a shower extension? You know, those kinds of things, they're all very good at, at kind of pulling that together. And if you, you know, if you need a shower extension, should you get it from the DME company or get it from Costco where it might be 20 bucks less? You know, so the, the PTs and OTs have a really good command of that and, um, you know, can kind of go a long way. We also act as a backstop, at, at least in our office, because uh, uh, we're the ones that are saddled with a problem if, if the wrong stuff's ordered because we're running back out again, getting stuff corrected. So if an order comes in for somebody who's 220 pounds for a narrow adult wheelchair, you know, we've got bells that go off here and we'll go back to the doctor's office and say, hey, um, is there a reason that somebody who's 220 is being put in a 16 inch chair? And usually it's a mistake or an oversight or or it may be that they're they're, you know, seven feet tall and, and thin, you know, that thin. But, uh, you know, we, we generally will will use body mass index to kind of make sure that they're getting the right size chair because uh, we deliver the wrong one. We're out the next day with the right one invariably. Steve, talk to me a little bit about the, the nightmare of walking into a patient's house where there are a hoarder or maybe there's bed bugs and it's full of garbage and you need to now pull in a hospital bed. There's no space for it. Like, what? I, I'm just imagining I love that granular question. That's well, awesome. I, it's a great I, question. It's really reality. I think that's the reality sometimes. I've got a, I've got a couple of drivers that could probably answer it better than I do, but the the uh, um, we're we're very um, uh, I guess investigative on the phone uh, with any equipment we're setting up. I mean, we're our, our customer service people that call you in the morning are going to say, "Is there space cleared for this bed to come in? You know, we need a single outlet for it. We don't want to see it plugged into a, a surge protector." Um, and our guys have got to pay attention to that. We had an incident out at, um, at the Washingtonian high rise where, uh, we advised a guy, you know, to, to not plug into a, you know, it was a situation where there was a hoarder and, and everything was plugged into one surge protector. And, uh, we, we, uh, told him in no uncertain terms that we weren't delivering oxygen because they were still smoking. And, you know, so we have to make the whole environmental judgment. Anyway, the place went up and smoke. 
um, because of the electrical problem that wasn't taken. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so we wow. we have to be real careful on that. But but getting our equipment in, um, you know, we we just definitely demand that there's space for it when we show up. Um, and then if there is an obvious problem, if we're putting oxygen in some place and, and we go into a basement and it's full of mold, uh, we'll get right on the phone with the doctor's office and say, hey, this, you know, you, you've got a pneumonia uh, case coming in about five minutes if this person has not moved to a better uh, living circumstance. And usually we're going in with home health or we're going in with hospice that uh, has social work attached to it that will address that. But uh in the case of individual patients that are ordering things through a, a primary care physician or something, uh, uh, we'll make the call if we see something that's out of line. Is it your responsibility at all to remove any old stuff, whether old DME or old beds, or is that completely up to the patient and family? That's completely up to the patient. In fact, we, we don't move equipment anymore. We did back in the, in the old days. But uh, it became a zero-sum game for us where if something got broken, we were buying it. If uh, right. our guy got hurt, we were paying workers' comp for it. So we, we're basically now insisting that people um, you know, have the space clear and, and rely on family, friends, or, or other professionals to move things that they might need moved. Steve, just quickly, um, just to go back to the secondary market, I remember you guys were looking at what that secondary market could look like and doing a cleaning. I don't know if it, you clean for the secondary market. Or are you doing equipment cleaning for people who own their equipment and just want it cleaned? Oh, uh, you're talking about the wheelchair maintenance program. That the we wheelchair have. maintenance program, yeah. That's that's um, that's kind of exclusive to us as far as I know. But yeah, if Great. somebody has a wheelchair and uh, needs it put back into shape, um, we, they can either bring it by or we can pick it up. There are two different price points on it where we'll power wash it and disinfect it and uh, adjust it, lubricate it, change any parts that need to be, you know, to basically give it life again. Uh, Steve, if the patient has or is on an MA plan, a Medicare Advantage plan, instead of original Medicare, does that change anything better or worse for yeah, you guys? And, then the, and the same thing is true with um, some of the commercial payers. Uh, they, a lot of those are contracted with specific companies. Um, you know, for instance, we're contracted with, with Blue Cross. We, we don't uh, work with Aetna or United Healthcare. But what happened when, and Kaiser is a good example as well, they, they have a direct contract with APRIA on a national basis. And um, the problem is, is that these contracts were all written with percentages off Medicare pricing. And with this competitive bidding program came in um, six or seven years ago, pricing dropped about 45%, and the number of uh, suppliers in the in the business dropped about 45%. I mean, it's, this is a whole other discussion we can have about where, where that's gone. But uh, all of those uh, contracts dropped down to what I thought was below sustainable levels. I mean, Medicare is barely sustainable. And if you're taking another 25% off, there's really no amount of volume um, a company my size can pick up that would would, would uh, make that work. So if you have an advantage plan, you need to get in touch with them and find out who they're contracted with. And um, again, most of the people that are ordering equipment on a regular basis, you know, hospital-based discharge planners or, or uh, uh, discharge planners at rehab facilities deal with it enough that they know who the players are for the different insurance companies and will direct orders to them that way. Got it. And what are the mechanics of that? So if I'm a doctor and my patient has an MA plan and they need, I think they need a wheelchair, do I give the prescription to the patient and it's up to them to then go figure it out? Or, or does my office staff try to figure it out? Like who does that? I would um, say that that's kind of based on the, uh, uh, I don't want to say the quality of the patient, but the, you know, the mental, mental and physical capability of the patient, you know, if somebody's going to be able to fend for themselves, all they have to do is flip their card over and call customer service and find out who that supplier is and then um, have them get in touch with you to get the prescriptions. Or, or again, you're, when you're dealing with an MA plan, you're still dealing with the same Medicare criteria that you need to follow. So there is going to be probably need from you know a, a person in your office to coordinate getting the paperwork right. But at least you can get the name of the supplier right off the back of the card. And, um, you know, so again, that's probably something that you could rely on the patient to do and then to get the, the forms to you. It, it depends on how quickly you want the equipment is the other thing. You know, if somebody is desaturated down to 82 uh, percent and they need oxygen, um, it's probably going to take more involvement from your office to get that moving 
quickly to keep him out of the hospital. Can we just, um, what I want to do is because I know that everybody's time is valuable, I want to just make sure that we get through what DME is and then sort of have some thoughts about this. Because honestly, Steve, we could have you back six more times. Um, so we've got hospital beds, we've got wheelchairs, we've got walkers. How about over the bed tables? Uh, that's a convenience. So that's that Medicare doesn't pay for that. That's not going to be covered. Let's jump back to walkers for one second because we got sure. over one that people have a big question on. Um, oh, yeah, right. Laters. The, the, the world of rollators um, exploded about five or six years ago. And, and the, the difference between a walker and a rollator, a rollator is kind of a deluxe uh, four-wheel item that has handbrakes on it and a seat. You can lock the handbrake so you can turn around and sit on it. They're used all over assisted living and, and uh, nursing facilities to get people around, and they're, they're a wonderful item. They are not they are not a Medicare covered item because all of the features on them are are uh, you know from the color to the basket are all convenience items that, that make up the price of them. Medicare will cover a basic rolling walker, um, and some of them you can get a cloth seat on if you if you if you need it. They're they're not really particularly safe, but the um, uh, so we get a, a lot of questions where people have ordered a walker a rolling walker and they're expecting a rollator delivered to the house. And um, uh, it becomes, a, again, one of those upgrade situations where we have to have a long discussion with them about what's covered, what's not covered. And then when you get into the rollators, there's a whole variety that you can get them for $75 online up to $225. Actually, there's 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 a $1,000 rollator, if you can believe it. Um, oh, my gosh. I want that one. It is nice. It's <laughs> That's the one I'm going to have. Just Whoa. tell me what the name and make and model is. Maybe I'll just have it in the house, you know, just to sit on and move around when I'm cooking. Um, it's really nice. But I anyway, bet. The uh, the point is, you can see the variety of questions that'll come in on that. Of sure. What's covered and not, and it, it's basically the, you know, the metal frame rollator with the two wheels on the front is what you're going to get through the Medicare program, and then anything uh, above that's going to be out of pocket. Got it. So, but it, you just have to pay the difference between what Medicare would have covered and the full cost of the Ooh. item. They that, will give you a little something-something. Yeah, that, that again involves a lot of, again, the advanced beneficiary notice and a lot of, of ah, paper. Right, right. We were doing that for a while, but the discussion time and, and uh, filing time and all that, uh, again, became problematic. So we're right now we're either doing a rollator, you know, through a private situation or a walker through Medicare. But, but oh, got not, it. Okay, you're not, between the two, they do not mix. Yeah. All right. Let me, I'm going to sort of like continue to kind of reiterate what we've talked about. And I'm going to ask a few, like maybe three or four more questions. And I think we're going to wrap because we need to have you back. It's like such an incredible amount of information. We've got beds, wheelchairs, walkers, and we've got uh, three in one commodes. Um, did I leave anything off? That's like the major things that Medicare does cover. They well, cover a seat lift, but not the seat itself. Important thing is like an alternating pressure pad. Because oh, all the things that go on top of. Beds. Okay, I feel like we need to wait on that. All right. That is like the 2.0. So we're going to wait on the bed discussion because I do think we might have you back literally just to talk about beds. That would kind of be an amazing story because then we can talk about overlays and all that other kind of stuff and it could just go on and on and on. And I really do want to hear more about um, some of the so some of the adventures that you've had over the years and talk a little bit about contracting and you know, all the nutty stuff that's going on in the industry, because I think you're just an amazing fountain of information. But what are the main things that would you say um, a consumer would know, would need to know? Number one is how long between the time a doctor sends an order to when they might receive their equipment, usually? Uh, What's the average turnaround time? If the paperwork is, is done correctly, um, most companies can still do it in 24 hours. Oh, wow. Eight hours, yeah. Um, but the, the, the watchword in there is the paperwork being done correctly. Um, and then and we have to go through, it takes us about a day of processing time to check and see if they've had the equipment before and make sure that the Medicare is all That's up. called the same and similar, right? You do a same and similar evaluation to make sure they haven't had a wheelchair because you can't have a wheelchair and a walker in the same five-year period or something crazy like that. Yeah, that's, that's frequently mistaken. Um, you can't order a wheelchair and a walker together because you're either going to be ambulatory or not ambulatory. Got it. 
a lot of disease progressions have you ambulatory and then you become am not ambulatory. A lot of rehabilitation has you non-ambulatory and then you become ambulatory. So as long as the sequence of it makes sense and they're not ordered on the same day, um, you can usually get one, those two covered if, it, if the whole situation makes sense. Um, but again, it takes eyes on, on watching all of this. But the turnaround time should not be astronomical. Where, where we're seeing problems uh, in the industry has just been screaming bloody murder is when people get hung up in the hospital uh, waiting for stuff, you know, particularly oxygen, you know, to get home. You know, an extra day in the hospital uh, is worth six months of DME, you know, in terms of cost to the program. Oh, my God. Oh, and my God. Alex, did you hear that? Okay, I need a little smile, a little nod, a little... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just... It's just crazy. It, yep. It's just crazy. I mean, no, I mean, I used to say you can do 13 house call visits for one emergency department visit. That was my little, yeah. like, weird nugget like that. Like, yeah, it's just crazy. Save us. I mean, aging in place um, is here to stay. Yeah. You know, we, we've right. got 30 years. It's got to be focused around the house or the, or the whole system's going to break. And, um, you know, whether that is, you know, communities coming together to help people out, whether it's realizing that durable medical equipment and similar types of home things uh, make sense because it keeps people out of the hospital. Um, there's going to be a combination of all of that going on. And we're going to see you know, if we can solve the social interaction issue with keeping people at home, which is the biggest problem, you know, where, yeah. where people become isolated. But uh, I think we've all learned how to deal with that in the last five or five months. Um, yeah. It, uh, we're going to see a lot more activity going on at home than we had in the, in the past. Well, I'm really, I'm going to, I'm going to give us all a break because this is definitely like the one the like part one of what is likely to be Steve, hopefully you'll accommodate us and come back because oh. you are an amazing um, fountain of information. And I guess I should give you a chance to say, how can someone reach you? And if I was a, a, a patient and I wanted to get DME, I could reach out to you and you would tell me how to get it from my doctor. So how, how would I reach you? What is the best way for our listeners to reach you? We're old fashioned. You can you can call 301-587-2992. And uh, uh, if you you can negotiate your way through, uh, it's a small phone tree, but we had to, I, I, I fought that for years, but uh, of course, <laughs> we, we had to do that. But we're, we're pretty easy to get a hold of. Uh, you can also we're uh, spectrummedical.net is our website. And you can you can drop a note in there. and We'll pick it up and call you back. But uh, um, we spend the day talking to people and, and we're, we're happy to take calls if people have questions. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Steve, Steve Ackerman from Spectrum Medical. This has been totally amazing and wonderful. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, like literally we're going to have you back like next, fr <laughs> next Friday, <laughs> Saturday, Sunday, a little bit more DME. All right. Thank you so much. And um, it's been a pleasure. You can reach us at www.masteringmedicare.net. And that's a wrap, huh? You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit masteringmedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. 